one of our core values is excel and improve and whatever you reward people will do. So I think what people, when you're putting out leaders and saying, congratulations on this promotion, you know, Cameron has just crushed excel and improve. He's taken all of our courses. He did this. It like, I think people start to see that the people stepping up and the people getting promoted are the ones that are invested in the learning and getting better. And that if the company is growing 30 or 40% of the year, and you're not going to do any work to get better, you are going to be in a precarious position pretty quickly. So I think it actually works better show, not tell. I think what people saw was like, hey, maybe Matt was resistant to some of this stuff, but he really started embracing the stuff and learning and got a coach. And, you know, I think then they can see the results that he was getting. And they're like, look, I got to do the same thing if I want to qualify for that role. In a company growing at 20 to 30% a year for a decade, if people aren't getting approximately that much better every year, they will be consumed by the growth line pretty quickly. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, so this is going to be a great episode for you. I just finished talking with Bob Glazier. Uh, Bob Glazier, Robert Glazier, Bobby Glazier. I've known Bob for, wow, wouldn't say a decade, but certainly seven or eight years. Um, I used to coach Bob and his team for a couple of years. His uh, COO, Matt Wool, was one of the founding members of the COO Alliance. He's one of the first three members of the COO Alliance six and a half years ago. They built the number two or number 10 company to work for in the United States on Glassdoor. Bob's written three books. He's actually the only CEO we've ever allowed to be on the podcast. And here's why. He elevated his COO, Matt Wool, from employee number two or three up to CEO of the company. And they now have about 350 employees system-wide. They built, again, one of the best companies to work for in the United States on Glassdoor. Bob's new book, uh, which actually launches today as well, is called Elevate Your Team. And he's going to talk about how they elevated their team, how they elevated their skill set, how they elevated their mindset, their physical capabilities, their emotional and spiritual capabilities, and how they've always looked at growing their people and investing in their people to scale up the company. So I think you're going to love the podcast. I will also put a link in the show notes to when we had Matt Wool, his COO, on the podcast. It was around 200 episodes ago. Matt, his uh, COO, is now actually the CEO of Acceleration Partners. Enjoy the episode and please share it with your friends as well. Bob, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Good to see you, Cam. Yeah, you too. So I'm, I'm actually curious to, to talk to you for a couple of, well, a bunch of reasons. One, you're brilliant and, and I've been able to follow your career and your business and your scale, but you're the first CEO that we've ever allowed on the Second in Command podcast. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and we're, we'll get into some of the reasons why, because it really ties into your book, Elevate Your Team, but it also ties into your, your current CEO, who was your COO for years, was one of the very founding members of the COO Alliance, Matt Wool. And I'll dig up his, um, his podcast number later, but it's, it's way back. It's probably like episode number 40 or something. Um, and I'll share that in the notes. So curious what, what got you to kind of, start the organization and even bring Matt into the organization. We'll start a little bit with him and then we'll go into some content to your book and then we'll go back again. Yeah. So someone recently, I know you've worked with a lot of different agency 
folks over the years. Some remember recently said to me, how did you start your agency? And I started to think about it and I started laughing and they were like, what's so funny? And I'm like, you know, I have a lot of friends with agencies. None of them started them intentionally. They started doing some work, you know, for someone and, and they got good at the so same thing. I, I, you know, I, I started doing some work for a couple companies in this area of affiliate marketing. Uh, this one company I was working with called tiny Prince. It was a crazy growth story. And I, I, I was like, look, I think you have an opportunity to do this. And they're like, we don't know how to do it. So I built it for them. The company sold for $300 million to Shutterfly. People went around the valley. They started saying, hey, and then calling and saying, hey, that thing that you helped Tiny Prince do that was really cool. Could you help us do it? And so I do a couple of them. And then I hired one person. And then I hired another person. And and you know that is typically <laughs> how an agency goes. When, when, when one person gets full, you hire more. When we were about 7, 8, 9, 10 people, I was like, oh, this is a business. I had actually, and, and Matt may have told the story, it's pretty funny. I mean, Matt originally came to me as a business school intern when I probably had two or three people in 2008, I think it was, where there were no jobs, right? This was the Great Recession. So I got a couple of business school interns, like really qualified people to come work at my three-person company uh, out, of, out of my basement. And, and Matt helped with a bunch of stuff. We had a great relationship. So a few years later, um, when we were kind of bursting at the seams and I was like, I need help. I called Matt and I was like, Hey, do you want to come help me kind of grow this thing? I think this is a, a real business and we need to, I need someone to run all the, the, the client services. And he was going through an existential crisis at his current business. So I, I like literally hit him on the right week and he joined and we've been kind of teamed up ever since. And that was how long ago? 10 years ago? That was so. Yeah, he. I mean, he. Yeah, he joined. I think it's probably eleven years now. This this year, yeah. So over that that kind of eleven year period, as the company scaled, you've gone from you know literally accidentally starting up a company to having three hundred and some odd employees now. Um, quite the accident. Well done. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure the whole time has been quite easy, right? Just super no simple, smooth, yeah, smooth sailing. You, you knew what you're doing the whole time. Um, how I know your book is called Elevate Your Team, but how have you had to elevate yourself during that 11 year period? Yeah, look, I we had coaches, and probably you told us this, and a bunch of people, but every time you double the business, you know, you'll break half your people and half your processes. And that happened. I, but I, at some point, I decided I didn't want that to happen. I was like, how could we grow the business by growing the people? I think the last 10 years, particularly, has been grow the business irrespective of the impact on the people and just get new people if you burn them out. I, I actually think that playbook is probably gone for a while now because I, also this, I don't think you'll get anyone to work for you. There's societal exhaustion uh, going on. So we really, really wanted to do things differently. I, I Look, I think you need to, every time the business doubles, you need to reevaluate. Do I want this role? Am I willing to change and get better and do the work to do it? I mean, I had to go from doing everything to trusting other people, to letting go. And I'm sure we'll get this eventually, but I would ask myself that every two to three years. And I'd look at the role objectively. And eventually the answer was no. <laughs> but but for a while it was, okay, then I got to I gotta learn how to do this. I got to learn how to lead. I got to learn how to delegate. I got to learn how to hire. Like if I want to qualify to be the leader of my organization and we keep doubling uh, every couple of years, then I, I, I've got to elevate myself. And And in kind of the elevating yourself, did you have a a line of sight to when you were going to elevate yourself to the point that you were going to move even out of the CEO role? Or did that happen, you know, because of the the growth or the transaction with PE? 
Yeah. I, I mean, it was all, I think it was a, a little bit of both, right? I realized that I liked, you know, right out of the pathology. I mean, I liked the new and the creative. We always joked that even in his different roles, whether it was VP of client services or, uh, or, or president, you know, CEOs, Matt, Matt always kind of ran the day-to-day -day business, kept the trains on the track, kept the wheel. And I was out there working on what are we going to do next year? And he was working on how does the business perform this year? And it was sort of a great tandem. I think as you're smaller, those kind of new and exciting things are are a big part of the business, right? And and you know, the 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 setting the vision and it's almost more a lot of times on selling people on on the future th than it is about the present. And then at some point that calculus starts to change. And so when we got to, we committed to, I, I, I wanted the company to be the global leader in its industry. And to do that, we need to keep growing. And that's what we were all motivated by. But I was also objectively able to look at that and say, huh, that means leading a seven person leadership team, being in meetings all day, dealing with this compliance stuff and operations stuff. I don't want to do that. So it worked for a few years where I was the CEO, but Matt was had a lot of the team reporting to him, most of the team. There were some issues with that. Like I had marketing reporting to me and he had sales reporting to him. And so there were some conflicts we you know, ran into. When we hired our last marketing lead, we decided to integrate that into Matt so that he would, could adjudicate the <laughs> sales and marketing things directly. And then at that point, I was like, I'm the CEO, but I'm I'm on a path to have no direct report. So I, maybe it's time to call a spade a spade. Uh, and and I'm probably it's probably not the CEO role anymore. You guys did so many things well at Acceleration Partners, and and one of the things that that clearly you did well, which is often overlooked, and is the titles. You didn't give Matt the COO title early, early on in his trajectory in running the company. You gave him a VP title, and I. It drives me bonkers when I see these, you know, twenty-person companies with a, a bunch of C-level people, or a, an eight-person company, and the per the founders calling themselves the CEO. Did you do you, that? You and, I, you and I have talked about that. You, yeah. You, if you are not the CEO, CEO, if you don't have an executive team that you're managing, you know, and the, all, all the roles are performed by you, you might be the president. You know, you might be the I don't I don't know what it is, but it, it's hard to call yourself a CEO when you don't have an executive team to manage. So did you did you cognizantly keep him at the VP level for a reason to chase down the other titles or did you begin to put those titles and and other roles and responsibilities in place Matt, as a Yeah, Matt and I have a lot of differences. So the one thing we we both are is we're not super title focused. So in fact, my title was managing director for for years cuz I I liked I always liked when someone had you know you found out the person running the company like had a sort of totally understated uh, title. And actually, then we started hiring some managing directors in other regions. And then it was like really confusing. So I only even gave myself the CEO title once like it was confusing to other people. I carried managing director for 10 years. So Matt came in, he ran client services. He was he was the, you know, ran the kind of delivery piece. And then eventually we elevated him to GM since that was sort of what he was. And I, I was missing one of the titles when you were talking about this earlier. Four years ago, he became president. And that's really when we started shifting around the exec team. And then a year ago, he became CEO. So I've seen a lot of people get in trouble with too big of a too big of a title. We didn't really have a need, you know, we there's debates on whether we still have a need for a COO at, at the size company that we are. 
because we have a, a, a chief client officer who really oversees all the delivery of services. That's a lot of what a CEO would, you know, would handle if, if the, if, if the core product is, is, is services. Was there any, um, you know, realignment that you had to do with the organization as he moved into these other roles and took on more and more responsibilities? Did you, how did you approach that with the team and, you know, to let them know and for you to step further and further away, what did you do there? So with each kind of redoing of the executive team and we hired someone at some point, I, I wanted that to be his hires, right? So when we started replacing people that either left or as we grew, you know, it, it became it became sort of his hire at some point, right? And, uh, and, and sort of his call because he was building kind of the, 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 the operating team. What was interesting in the last thing is I had approached Matt and this was also a year before we did our transaction, but two years before the transition and said, uh, we were on a walk in London. And I said, we're talking about his career trajectory. I said, look, I, I want you to be the CEO of this organization. I think it's better aligned to what your skill set and where we're going and what I want to do. I'm already spending a lot of time writing and speaking and doing this other stuff. And like, this is really where I see it going. And so we worked on a, on a two-year transition plan. And we were fully transparent when we were talking to investors and otherwise, and we can get more into that. So uh, six months into it, we told our leadership team. So we said, the, the the path is to take this to Matt, to CEO. And and we actually knew that we were going to do it You know, a year after we closed the investment. We just felt like bringing on investor, changing CEOs would be a lot of change for people at once. But what we kind of did that last year was we started moving everything slowly. So Matt started leading more of the company meetings. Um, again, we hired that new director of marketing, reported to Matt. I basically went down to zero things. By the time we announced it in December, and people were like, it was kind of like the Kaiser Soze thing. Uh, people, people were like, so what's going to change? And we're like, really nothing. Because if you've been watching what we did the last year, I don't, no one reports to me anymore. Matt leads all the company calls. <laughs> like, there's like, we actually did it all kind of when you weren't looking. And that made the transition pretty easy. I do like that it was that, that kind of two year kind of um, transition period and that you guys really worked hard at it too. It wasn't just a rip off the band aid, do it. Cause I think it's dangerous when a CEO kind of abdicates and dumps and runs away. It, it can be. Yeah. And Matt had, Matt had work to do and he was good about the feedback. And I, you know, we told him the things we had to work on. We got the feedback. He really, he really like worked on those. Like it's a different role and, and, and it's, you know, you know, a bigger role. And so, you know, he did that and we, we look, we probably could have done it a little sooner, but I think we were very intentional about it. I, I also really, and I think he would say this is, you know, I, I started, I think people thought, this is just for, and someone wrote it in some Glassdoor review. Like, this is just a figurehead thing. Bob's not, Bob's going to be pulling the strings and all that stuff. Like, I think people saw very quickly that I, I stepped out of the room. I stepped out of the meeting. These were Matt's calls. These were Matt's decisions. I think if you're going to do something like this, you need to get the hell out of the way and make it really clear to people like that, you know, they can't have the kids kind of, you know, <laughs> pitting the parents against each other. Like, I knew for him to be successful and given that I had had a big brand persona tied to the business, I would need to get out of the way quickly. And so I still joined the weekly meetings. I started kind of our two day offsites. I started being there for the strategic review, but not the tactical planning day um, and, and making conscious changes so that people really felt like it was, it was different and it was his, his company. I know you mentioned that Matt had to work on some stuff um, to kind of elevate himself in in that transition period. 
and I know that at one point he was involved in the CO Alliance. He was one of the founding members. He was in that for a couple of years, and he he was doing coaching. You know, being going through coaching stuff. What else do you th- what do you think he specifically did? I guess from a more generic, like was it coaching and working with with consultants and re- reading books and and then what specifically were there some specific areas that he had to elevate himself in? Yeah, and some of it was just endemic to the job and the role and the change. But we worked with coaches over the years. Um, he's worked very closely with them. You know, we worked with you. We worked with a bunch of coaches. He, there was a lot of reading. He started going to events. You know, he started going to a lot of these things instead of me. He and I actually started a book club for six months before the transition. I picked like the five books on leadership that I thought were really impactful. And we would we would read them and and talk about them. But I think some of it was was also just equally related to the role, right? In terms of like his job was going to be to start setting the vision and starting to put, you know, a COO type person is someone who typically the visionary gives them the crazy vision. They're the one to figure out how it's going to happen and otherwise. I think getting comfortable with putting big things out there, pushing the accountability down to the team, not knowing exactly how it was going to happen, but saying, look, this is where we're going. This is where we marched to. Like you're you're responsible for figuring this out. Not I'm responsible for for figuring it out. Cause that's a that's just a difference. I think the the other thing that I think a couple of things that he you need to learn. And I think these go, these are some of the reasons why, you know, I love Matt, but you know, Matt is a carry your own bag, book your own plane ticket, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of person like spends company money. And I was like, look, you just can't do this. Like <laughs> you need to, you know, he started taking over my EA. I was like, you, you know, there was a lot of things where he was doing 10 one-on-one calls with people. I'm like, you're the CEO of the company. Like, I, I love that you're running 10 mentorship groups, but like, that's not how you can spend 20 hours a month. Like you need to start thinking of your time um, differently. So I think that as I, I told him, I was like, you're the only person in the world that I would say this to you, but like, you need to be fancier. Like, you know, you need, most people need to be less diva. You need to be more diva. Like, like I'm the CEO of a 300 person company. Like, like I'm not gonna, I, I'm gonna buy the direct flight. I'm not gonna deal with my ticket. I'm gonna ask someone to change the hotel room for me. Right. Like, I, you know. It, I'm CEO, it, bitch. <laughs> yeah. As I've said to him, I'm like, I literally I was like, I literally wouldn't tell anyone of this, but you need even more diva. The other thing that was something I direct that also, again, I think what's great about Matt, I had the same problem when I learned this, was like Matt's like very approachable, very easy to understand. Like I learned it's like the Disney rule. Like as the company gets big enough, you need to realize you are on stage and you are in costume and people take every joke and every word you say, like as gospel. And I, I really learned that the hard way. And, you know, I did, a I, I point out a lot of examples, you know, for him of, of where he would just have to, unfortunately, you can't, you have to be a little less casual and, you know, a, a little, and, and I just, I learned a lot of that stuff the hard way where you want to just be you, but there's just stuff you, you don't realize how people take all of your words and stuff as CEO of the company when you're just trying to be the, the person next door. Yeah, I, I've been telling people for years that sarcasm doesn't scale either. Sarcasm is fine when there's ten of you, but sarcasm doesn't work right. when there's you know. Particularly if you if you know someone really well, you know they're sarcastic, right? I think you're used to your team that know how to read you. Other people don't know how to not. read yeah, you. The rest yeah. of the company, so you end up making a comment during a town hall, and the other two hundred people have no idea what the heck just happened up there. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think there was some presentation stuff. We've we've look. I had this. 
particularly with video, a lot of leaders in our company, they start seeing the filler words. And I had to do this for myself. Say, I want you to take that video and go watch it over and over again. And when you watch it, you're going to be really uncomfortable. And then you'll probably realize why you need to stop saying that same sentence or whatever that crutch sentence is. But we have a very learning oriented uh, company. And so I think everyone's really good about feedback. We had someone on our team who was really bad. We started highlighting the umming to people, you know, in, in calls. And they told everyone to like raise their hand if, in the call, like if they started doing it just to like, you know, <laughs> make them super aware of it. So everyone elevating in themselves into that new role like that is going to have development things to work on. It's just part of it's endemic to taking on a new role. I love I loved one of the examples was that, you know, Matt had to get better at not knowing how to do everything. And entrepreneurs often have no idea how to do anything. <laughs> like, you yeah, know, asked everyone else to do it because they yeah. didn't know how to do it. Yeah, it's good. I, I had a friend of mine who called himself the lazy entrepreneur, and he opened up his head office 3000 miles away from his home so that he couldn't go into the office and see people. A couple of years later, he had 200 employees that literally were 3000 miles away. And he's like, I have an office of four people managing the 300 people in Winnipeg. I'm like, that's genius. Yeah, look, if it works, it works. Go with it. Okay, so I, I want to ask, you mentioned Glassdoor kind of in passing. And you guys as a company ranked very, very highly uh, for one or a bunch of years on Glassdoor, like number two or number 12 or something on Glassdoor to work for in the United States. What were the top few reasons why you think that happened? Well, look, I think we built a, a good culture. I also think pragmatically, like we, if you, if you don't, we, we would check in with people. We knew Glassdoor is really important and we would not tell people what to write or otherwise, but we would regularly check in with people and say, Hey, look, if you haven't posted anything in a few years, could you leave an update? And we didn't know if they did or not, but if you, I, I it, look, it's a really important metric. And unfortunately it's totally blind and other people can do it. If you sit around and as your company gets bigger, there'll always be unhappy people. And if you don't have the happy people <laughs> contributing regularly and you just get the unhappy people, and then what you see happens is there's an unhappy review or a bad review. And then the company like jumps all over it and asks everyone. And then you see nine great reviews and it looks like it's trying to kind of wash that out. So I think it's it's important to have a regular program of asking people as they come in or, hey, would you just leave uh, a thing on there? So um, I always had that as sort of a KPI, not not what I can't can't control what people said, but just to ask regularly. Um, I think there are a lot of companies out there that you, you're just seeing the reflection of the 5% of the company that doesn't like it when the 95% of people love it. But really happy people oftentimes don't take the time to go, you know, post things online. You're right. One of the things I've tried to do as a, as a kind of a little system is anytime I hear from an employee or customer that they're super happy, I just reply back going, thanks so much. So glad you're happy. And then 24 hours later, I go back and I go, hey, I was just thinking about your email yesterday, which I've already acknowledged and said, I'm glad they sent. And I'm like, just think about that email. Would you mind hopping on? And here's the link and leaving us a quick review. I'd love it if you would. Yeah, look, you shouldn't feel if you're pressuring people or doing stuff, that's garbage. But you shouldn't feel any guilt around regularly acting people that are happy to tell other people that. And you're not telling them what to say. You're just asking them to do it. We actually had a thing years ago. And then because someone wrote about this on Glassdoor, we haven't done it in five years, but people still post because I think they some angry person goes back and takes it from a, another post. We had we were submitting for a lot of awards and it was exhausting. So we at we, one time we've had a spreadsheet. We said, look, if you filled out these things, because a lot of them need company participation, mark it off 
and just check it in and we will, you know, do a raffle and you can win an Apple watch. We were just trying to thank people for their time because they had to fill out all these things. We never, we never, and people were like, they're paying for reviews. And I was like, look, it's anonymous. I don't know if they reviewed, I don't know what they said. They could have left a horrible review and won an Apple watch. Like I, it's funny though, this narrative that we were, I was like, we never told people what to say. We never pressured anyone. We just asked them if they feel comfortable writing one. And, and again, they're all anonymous. So I have no idea who, who posted what. Hey, it's Cameron. Did you hear? That's right. I wrote another book. But this book isn't just another book for me. It's actually for you, the visionary CEO that is looking to grow and scale their business. This book is called The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. As a founder and CEO, you're used to making all the decisions, but the business you have isn't the one you envision. Heck, we've all been there. And the thing is, you know what you need. You need a COO, someone who can help you build the company you don't know how to build on your own. The Second in Command is your go-to guidebook when you're ready to scale up. I go through all the details in every aspect of the process. From knowing when you need to hire a COO, through identifying and hiring the right candidate, and successfully onboarding and working with them, and so much more. Go to CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to get your copy today. The Second in Command reveals the benefits COOs bring to companies and explores the many ways a COO mastermind or a COO forum can help grow the COO skills. You'll meet the types of COOs and understand the role each type plays. Discover how to bring on a COO into your company with the least disruption and avoid common problems before they arrive. Once again, it's CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to grab your copy today. There's no need to go it alone. We're in this together. Now back to the show. Yeah, I agree. I I don't think there's anything wrong with asking happy employees and happy customers to leave a review. You better take that. You can't leave that stuff up to chance. In fact, you should probably set a calendar reminder. And once a week, like think of who's an employee, who's a customer. Again, because now you're spreading these things over, you know, every week or every two weeks, rather than what inevitably happens is you get one or two bad reviews. Everyone goes into a fire drill yeah, and it just it. looks like you're trying to, you know, cover that up. So, so you, you want to do that before you need to. You got to bury the body in advance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to talk about, about your book. So elevate your team. And it's funny, every time I started thinking about your book in the last couple of weeks, I kept thinking it was called elevate, elevate. Why am I, did you have another book? That was elevate? my original book. This is the sort of sequel. Oh, yes. Okay. So I was like, wait, there's something else. Okay. That's why it, it looks, it looks, it looks, I don't have, it looks very similar too. So yeah, yeah. the, the other, other one was gray. blue with yellow yeah. though, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. inverse. Yeah. And your first book was called performance partnerships, I think, wasn't it? Co- correct. So that okay. was a marketing kind of industry book. And then elevate was my first kind of, it was more of a personal leadership development book. And then elevate your team. I know you talk in it about four kind of core areas. Uh, do you want to touch on those? Yeah. It's like spiritual, emotional. So actually both books have the same framework. They just look at it differently. So elevate was how do you get better as a leader and develop other leaders by looking at sort of spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional capacity? Because I just saw that as the core of all improvement and personal development. Spiritual is not religious, but it's what are your core values? What are your strengths? How do you show up? Intellectual is kind of your operating system. So how do you learn, plan, execute, get better with discipline once you know what you want? 
physical is more like it sounds. It's kind of your mental and physical wellness. I mean, again, we are the same person inside and outside of work. I was saying this before we're working at home. You don't, you're not a disorganized, exhausted person at home and you show up to be a super organized, you know, energetic person at work. These are, these are holistic kind of life skills. And then emotional is, you know, how you relate to other people, you know, vulnerability, um, kind of like the, the, how you interact with the people and, and the world around you. So Elevate talked a lot about how to look at that as a personal development framework for understanding kind of where you were out of line room otherwise. And, and, and there's a lot of feedback, like this is great from a leadership development as I started thinking about how we built the organization, it was because we committed to make people better holistically. Like, how do I make Cam just better? Like, and then he'll be a better employee, but he'll be a better father, husband, partner. He'll be, you know, more relaxed. Like, again, if your physical health is crap, your physical health is crap across all of your all of your thing. And and I started realizing that actually we had been training as an organization across those same disciplines. We had been helping our leaders understand their strengths, weaknesses, communication styles. We had been building a whole learning culture of feedback and how everyone gets better and teaching everyone just better habits and financial literacy. We've been encouraging people to go run races and paying for coaches and things that they wanted to do and their goals and really like paying people to go on vacation and unplug from work and really try to have that. And then we were also doing crazy stuff around kind of emotional capacity. We had someone come in and we had employees do Ted talks at our annual event. And then we had someone come in, Philip McKernan, you might know him. And he facilitated this thing called one last talk. And so we had four employees go up there and give their, this is the talk. If it was my last day on earth that I would give, I mean, a, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. B like what happened after that in terms of like employees having real conversations with each other and all this stuff. So this really goes through that framework from, how do you create an org, you know, an organization that has those same works on those same capacities versus an individual? It's funny, Philip. Yeah, I've I've joked with with Philip and about Philip. I call him like the person that I love to hate the most or hate to love the most. Like whenever he talks to me, he he ends up like within minutes getting to like the core of the real the soul. Issue. He he looks into your soul and you're hysterically crying within 15 seconds of talking with him every time. I, I, I've had him on my podcast. Everyone says the same thing. Like. I asked him straight up. I was like, Philip, like, is there like, there's some, I understand you just, you're good at your job and you figured out a lot of these things, but there's something deeper in this. Like there's some skill that you have where you just see through it. And he he was even saying that he reacts, not, he says people will say something, but their facial muscles tell him like, something totally different and he is very gifted at what he does yeah he's crazy good at it he i don't think he just sees your soul i think he goes in and rips it out and then shakes it around and hands it back to you and goes fix it yeah one of my team some of my team who's the toughest emotional person said he had me crying ugly in like 15 seconds like wow. he's talking to me yeah well, like <laughs> the, the the other person who reminds me of, of him in a slightly different way is warren rustend Yes. I have, I've got Warren coming and speaking at our in-person um, CO Alliance event. Warren does the same thing to me where I could, I could be at the peak of my game and feeling the best about myself. And I listen to his story. I'm like, right. Warren does it with stories. They're different. They're two of my favorite people. He does it with these stories about stuff he's done. And Philip just looks right into your soul. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah very different. 
Um, all right. I want to talk about, about the, the kind of the growth that you did with Matt then around those four areas. So Matt being a COO, were there some specific things that you helped him or he identified for himself around the spiritual, intellectual, emotional, physical? Yeah. You know, one of the things that we all did as a leadership team years ago, we did this why training. And it's been like super instructive. Like, I, I think I really, like, I really pushed it. Like there are these nine kind of why archetypes and and they really explain more than any of these tests. I mean, Colby and a lot of these things are work style, but like kind of what is the core way that you show up and bring in your core motivation? And and I would say it's at the root of almost every conflict. Like when you, when you dig into a conflict and you, and you dig in the why stuff. So I think, you know, Matt's not doing vision boards and stuff yet. I haven't gotten him fully all, all of this family all the way on board uh, on that. But um, he also, again, embracing kind of setting those big goals, looking ahead, kind of putting putting it out there. Um, on the intellectual side, we have a just a crazy learning organization. Like people are always teaching, mentoring, coaching. I think, you know, I... I I convinced him eventually to get into OneNote or or just other things again that weren't that weren't scaling like that worked when you were a ten person company but you're not going to remember this stuff when it's a hundred I mean he he was running I think ten uh, like forum groups he started kind of uh, manager forums and was leading like ten of them at a time uh, and was just teaching the five dysfunction stuff of the team yesterday so you know I think he really got a lot into this you know, we are, uh, we are a learning culture. And also uh, we've always embraced a lot of the, we don't want people working to death. Like we want to have an outcome oriented culture. Uh, it, what's funny is the places that really celebrate heroes hours and all that stuff, they, they are rewarding like inputs, not outputs. It's very disconnected from results. The fact that we were remote for so long, but that we already had sort of gone into this. We know our metrics. We know our KPIs. Before COVID, people would say to me, they'd look at me like at five heads. Your entire team is remote, like all 150 of them. Like, how do you know they're doing anything? Like, how do you? I was like, well, look, our clients run these programs. The programs have goals. And so we look at, is the program hitting its goals, which meets our financial thing? And are the clients happy? And everyone has on balance kind of the same portfolio of work. Let's say every account manager has four or five, six clients. So if this manager has all their companies hitting their goals and they're all, you know, net promoter scores off the chart and, and they're working four hours and the other person working, I don't care. No. In fact, I want to <laughs> yeah. teach them what the four hour guy's doing. Right. Exactly. What, what they, maybe they're focusing on the one relationship that's driving results and not that they figured out the 80, the 80, 20. So it just was always very easy for us to measure what good looked like. And in fact, I think that uh, as, as we got into hyper growth mode and, and you and I talked about this before and just started throwing more resources on things, we didn't, it didn't actually produce higher higher output. I think we're in a great reevaluation now where everyone just put more against things and realized the cost of complexity. I've, I've always believed that um, the, the leader's core job is to grow people, right? To elevate people, to grow their skills and their confidence. And I launched a course uh, two years ago called Invest in Your Leaders. And one of the core things I've noticed is that the, the learner controls the environment. The learner is not going to want to learn until they realize that they either have a need or a desire to learn. How do you get your leaders in companies like a Matt Wool, who's doing really well, you know, operating as president? How do you get him to want to learn to something and not take the feedback defensively? Or, or is that just a natural thing for him that 
I think we really built the culture around teaching people how to give feedback, that feedback was about getting better, that if you if you attack characteristics in people personally, rather than trying to talk about the issue and how to fix it and make it better last time, like that was just always part of our culture. I think the other thing is, again, one of our core values is excel and improve and and whatever you know you whatever you reward people will do so i think what people when you're putting out leaders and saying congratulations on this promotion you know cameron has just crushed excel and improve he's taken all of our courses he did this it like he, I, I think people start to see that the people stepping up and the people getting promoted are the ones that are invested in the learning and getting better. And that if the company is growing 30 or 40% of the year, and you're not going to do any work to get better, you are you are going to be in a precarious position pretty quickly. So I think it actually works better show not tell. I think what people saw was like, hey, maybe Matt was resistant to some of this stuff, but he really started embracing this stuff and learning and got a coach. And you know, I think then they can see the results that he was getting. And they're like, look, I got to do the same thing if I want to qualify for that role. In a company growing at 20 to 30% a year for a decade, if people aren't getting approximately that much better every year, they will be consumed by the growth line pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and when, they, when you hit that kind of like I, I've read and, and talked about that a good leader can only go through two doubles in the size of the company before they're out of a job unless they've continued to double their skills. At what point do you know that the person can't continue to grow? And and do you get rid of them? Or do you just move them into a role that they're good, well suited for at the skill level they have and the company scales, but they now stay stagnant? And is that okay? I have a graph in the book that was actually part of, I won't ruin the opening, a shower epiphany that sort of changed everything on showing like, how fast does the person improve relative to the growth rate of the company? And that sort of predicts, you know, where you're going to be in their ability. This is something I had to learn the hard way. I, I Look, I think if people are, they want it, they, you know, GWC, get it, want it and have the capability, they can keep going. Like we have, you know, Sarah Days on our team who was hired an SEO copywriter and now leads a team of 200 delivery people globally as the chief client officer. Sarah is just a voracious learner and like will just, you know, developed into incredible leader, like all of these things. So I know people would hit, would hit the wall, I think when they stop getting it, right? They stop wanting to do the work. What I can tell is that the best people that I've ever had on my team, you're always giving them feedback. So you and I will sit down for a quarterly thing, Cameron, here are the things you need to work on. We're not talking about those next quarter. You go and you work on those and you improve those and you make new mistakes. When you start having the same conversation and they're like, and, and, and you're like, I always say the worst, there's people who clearly don't want the feedback and aren't going to improve. Then there's people who listen intently and don't improve. And then there's people who listen intently and improve. The second group is the worst. The first group, you know what you're getting. The second group goes, yep, I get it. I hear it, whatever. And then we're three months later talking about the same thing again. So as soon as I start to see the same issue and we're not making progress, I, I, I sense that the end is near. And to the second part of that question, I got advice on this. Look, if you're getting better 30% a year, a group or a division. And let's just say there's a marketing manager as the head role to start. Well, then eventually you're going to need a marketing VP and a marketing director and a CMO. You might ride up a couple of those things, but it might be unrealistic that you can ride that fast. Your ego needs to let you step aside and be like, I just moved from you know analyst to director in two years, but the company needs a VP. I think a lot of those people really struggle when they're homegrown and that person comes in and there should be a great role for them. They've been promoted twice, 
But the fact that they're not it anymore, I had a guy say to me, I was like, I'm running into this. I said, what did, what did you do? He said, I had to part ways with almost all of them. And to a T two years later, they would come back to me and they would say, you were totally right. I was over my head. I couldn't see it. My ego got in the way. <laughs> so it's 50, 50. I think, I think some people realize, look, I had a friend who had a, you know, a bookkeeper who turned into a controller and he needed a CFO and the company was growing hundred percent a year. And he knew she was not the CFO and he made her the CFO and she made a million dollar mistake, you know, and that, and, and that, that was his mistake. And he says that that was on him. Like just because she wanted it <laughs> didn't mean she had, you know, the capabilities to, 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 to be a CFO. And, and by the way, it's, it's unrealistic to think that even with miracle grow, that someone can turn into a, you know, a, a controller to a, a CFO in two to three years. Yeah. Or bookkeeper I've, I've had those CFO. discussions with some leaders and, and kind of following some of this, the science of persuasion where you sit down and just, you kind of convince them that they're going to enjoy reporting to this new VP and getting more time from somebody versus the the 5% of my time, they're going to get a hundred percent of getting, getting to report to this new leader and, and grow with them. Right. And sometimes. Yeah. They and what, what they might not understand. And we've said like, look, like you need a mentor. We don't, like, I don't know enough about marketing to help you anymore, but if, if, if you see what happens when we hire a rock star person that you can learn from, you know, you're, you're not the CMO now, but you could be the VP of marketing who gets a CMO role elsewhere in, you know, three years. Yeah. How do you, how do you decide or, or do you distinguish who your A players are and do you give more time to your A players than your C players? Or do you have any thoughts yeah, we, around Yeah, we have done that? different things. Like I, I would run twice a year, um, like leadership retreats for kind of our, our up and coming leaders, trying to get them leadership training and reps before they needed it. We actually also just really relaunched a whole thing like a hypo program, like our high potential, highest performers, highest potential. We're all identified across the company and they're going to get like special training and leadership access. And one of the rules of that program was they don't belong to any team, which is interesting. They're like, if they're tagged as this, then we are all responsible for making them better. And you should not restrict them to your, you know, if they're tagged as one of the 15 highest potential people in the company, you should not look at them just from what's available on your team, but what's available on, on any team. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because there's it's hard when we know we've got these A players and we kind of just let them do their thing. And then we keep working hard with the underperformers to grow them and elevate them without elevating the A players. And it almost seems to be a shame. Look, we love to invest in people and train people. And uh, I was really struggling years ago because we would hire in classes, mostly for very similar jobs. And you'd hire 10 people and eight would be doing great at week two and two were totally struggling. By the way, if I, I don't have the data on this, but I would tell you that if we just statistically made a decision on how someone did in their first two weeks, I think it'd be right 98% of the time. I think people who start off horribly and people are like, well, you didn't train them. right. I'm like, but once you're in that deficit, there's almost no coming back. When you start off, when you, when you can't do what we thought you hired you to do, and our training is to get you to average. So we made the decision years ago. We're not going to train to get anyone to average. Training should be high potential, move them to the next level. I don't want to retrain you for the job that we thought we hired you to do that you actually can't do. That feels like a, as much as I want to invest in people, that feels like a really bad use of limited resources. Yeah, agreed. You, um, when you went through this private equity deal, so you sold the private equity or sold a portion of the company to private equity? Yeah, it was a, a portion growth investment, yeah. 
And and when you did that, um, you you mentioned to me before we went live that they were really happy to see that you had a solid second in command. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So first of all, in in the deal and all the details and stuff, right? Founder usually doesn't know anything, like and, and, and going to say stuff. But we actually were in the middle of that transition, and we said, "Look, Matt runs all the day to day business. He's going to be the CEO." And they were totally on board with that. And I think when you have these deals. You know, one of the fears of the private equity firms, I think, is that the founder is going to leave, right? They roll in a bunch of equity, but they don't necessarily have to stay and they're going to get bored or they're burnt out. You know, mid market growth private equity firms are not in the replace the CEO business, right? That tends to be bigger ones. They are kind of betting on the team. That would be like a worst case scenario. But in the back of everyone's mind, like that's an insurance policy. So when the insurance policy already exists on the team, <laughs> That's very attractive to the investor, right? If they know that there's a number two already on the team who could be number one, I think that makes the the, the deal in the company much more marketable. Because the thing that they are always worried about is founder concentration and founder, you know, risk. And if what happens, something happens to the founder. I actually, they were totally on board. And in some ways, it's like, oh, we want we want the person who's stepping up over the next five years who can have you know massive wealth creation, life changing opportunity to 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 run the business. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, before I, I ask you my last question, I wanted to, to first say thank you as well. Thank you for investing and in, and in elevating Matt because because of him and and two others. It was Zach Obrant um, from Scribe and Zach Morrison from what's now called Tenuity, though they were the three founding members of the COO Alliance. And because you decided to put your your money where your mouth is to to grow him and you you invested 20 grand in him just to come and and you know get is that what we paid? Jeez. Yeah. Plus, <laughs> <laughs> plus some coaching. And I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, but thank you for doing that. Thank you for for caring enough to elevate him. So I want you to roll roll the camera backwards in time and go back to like the 22-year-old Bob Glazier. I don't know if you were Robert Glazier back then or Bob Glazier probably, back then. Probably, probably Bobby. Bobby. So let's go back to the Bobby Glazier, 22-year-old. How would you tell yourself to elevate yourself back then? Something that maybe you know to be true today, but you wish you'd worked or focused on it earlier. Yeah. So so it's interesting. Someone was reading my bio before speaking about recently, and I realized that every single thing that they had said was what I would call like ACV, after core values. So coming out of a leadership uh, thing with Warren almost 10 years ago, I was like, wow, I think I'm very values oriented, but I don't know what my core values are. And I went on this kind of journey. I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. And now I built a program and it's a course and we train all our leaders on understanding their core values. Because to me, that's becoming the authentic type of leader that you want to be. I think when we all start leading, I used to say, and when I present this to our team, it felt a little bit like a patchwork quilt. Like I, we take the things that we like from other leaders. We try to do the opposite of the things that we hated. Like, and some of it's just not us. And so I think at 22, it was like trying to copy best practices of other people. I think after going through that process, I was like, look, here's what I'm going to be. Here's what I'm going to do. And, you know, when someone, I'm going to hire someone from my team. I'm like, look, this is why you will absolutely love working for me. And this is why you absolutely love hating <laughs> working for me. And they're fundamentally the same thing. Like, I'm just going to tell this. I, this is who I am. Yes, I can change a little bit and I can evolve, but I'm not fundamentally going to change. I, I think if I had had that clarity and conviction earlier, I, I would have made better decisions. I would have done things that were more authentically me. I think a lot of times we try to, again, we try to 
I, I could see something, you and I could see something that Warren could do, but it's not, it's not us, right? It's Warren. And, and, and we try to, we try to copy it and we realize where we're leading by kind of pretending to be a bunch of different people and not ourselves. I love that. Super authentic as well. Bobby Glazer. Thank you so much for sharing. Can't, can't this me on the <laughs> <Podcast>. <laughs> exactly. Thanks very much, man. I appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com. <laughs>